This is Nir Bashan, author of The Creator Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secret to Innovation, Growth, and Sustainability. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Nir Bashan to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Creator Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secrets to Innovation, Growth, and Sustainability, published by McGraw-Hill. Nir Bashan is a creativity expert. He's taught thousands of leaders and individuals around the world how to harness the power of creativity to improve profitability, increase sales, and ultimately create more meaning in their work. Nir has spent the last two decades working on a formula to codify creativity, which is found in the book we're going to be talking about today. His background includes being an opinion columnist, an advertising copywriter, and a Hollywood screenwriter and director. And his work has won a Clio Award, which in the advertising world is like an Oscar. And he was also nominated for an Emmy. Nir is the founder and CEO of the Creator Mindset LLC, a company that conducts workshops, consulting, coaching, and keynote speeches at conferences and corporate events. And his clients include AT&T, Microsoft, Ace Hardware, NFL Network, EA Sports, Suzuki, and JetBlue. And interesting fact. He is a fan of the English Premier League football club, West Ham United. Nir, congratulations on the creator mindset, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Now, is it Doug or Douglas? I answer to both, good sir. Okay, good. Because some people are really sensitive about stuff like oh, that. Oh, well, I like it written Douglas, um, um, and the main reason why is because uh, as a kid, my pals would call up the house and say, is Doug there? And my dear mother would say, there is no one here named Doug. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want any lightning bolts coming down, uh, you know, from yeah, yeah, hitting of people. Course. So anyway, but I have I, to respect that. Yeah. And I'm often called worse on a daily basis. So not a problem. Now, <laughs> West Ham United, uh, I've become a a fan of, I, I love learning more about English Premier League. And if there are any West Ham listeners to the Marketing Group podcast, I would really, really like 
to hear from you. But in some communication we had before the interview about a week or so ago, you shared with me some things about their rival, Millwall, which Uh-oh. I was not aware of. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you said that a, a criminal record is required to be a Millwall fan. Is that is that true, Nir? It's not required, but it's preferred. Oh, so, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being a Millwall fan is one of those things where, like, you know, you're the guy on the airplane that the, you know, flight attendant, sir, ma'am, please shut up your phone. You know, we're we're about to take off, and you don't shut it off. You're a Millwall fan. Oh gosh, you know? maybe I'm one. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Now I usually have several drinks, and then I tell them I'm not going to turn off the phone. No, right. I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's you know, it's the guy who's like honking at the old lady crossing the street. You know, like laying into the horn of the poor lady right. with her walker. Just that's it. You're a Millwall fan. If you're okay. Hungry. Okay. Well, now, if there are any Millwall fans, I hope to hear from them as well because uh, I've, I, uh, you know, I'm a uniter, not a divider near Bashan. Right. And, uh, but I, but I, <laughs> I would like to know if those, if uh, any listeners are, are fans of those teams. Now, another thing is that you are a graduate of the University of Southern California, USC Trojans. Yes, fight on. And they have many famous uh, graduates. And what I was wondering is when you go to alumni parties and you talk to O.J. Simpson, who's also a grad, what what is he like? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you picked like the one one guy from the school that uh, was notorious. There's a lot of... um, very decent graduates, uh, Douglas. You didn't have to pick the one middle man. <laughs> okay. Well, I just heard he had a killer personality. <laughs> I want to read a quote from the uh, beginning of the book here and get into it. So you write, logic alone is not enough. There is a crisis occurring in most businesses and careers today, and that crisis is a stark lack of creativity. A vast majority of people today have overdeveloped the analytical part of their thinking and underdeveloped the creative part. It doesn't matter what brain power enhancing vitamins you're taking or what new healthy diet you're on. It doesn't matter if you have multiple PhDs or shrewd street smarts. The fact remains that the vast majority of people today are operating at half their potential. It's no wonder that sales are lackluster, careers are stalled, and relationships cannot grow. Unfortunately, it gets worse. A vast majority of companies are operating at half their potential, and most go out of business within the first five years. It's ludicrous. What drives this failure rate? Why are things so bad? Why do most companies fail? The answer is simple, and it's what inspired me to write this book. The answer is creativity. The creator mindset will teach anyone, including you, how to solve problems through the lens of creativity It is a method I created to teach anyone how to solve any problem with a blend of both the analytical part and the creative part of the mind, giving you true optimal performance at 100% of your potential capacity. So, Nir, that sounds great. (laughs) But but I I have to ask, um, you know, surely someone is already teaching this today. I mean, aren't colleges and courses out there to teach people how to be more creative in business and, and in life? I wish. There, there aren't. Um, you know, most of what's taught in schools today is a worship and a love affair of the analytics. We love numbers, Doug. Douglas, 
Yeah. We are so interested in things that we can quantify and attaching a number feels like we've done something, right? It feels like we've done some work. And what ends up happening is we're ignoring a whole half of our potential to be able to solve problems. And we get the world that we have today, you know, where, you know, we have companies during COVID-19, right? Uh, Global pandemic, we have people that are struggling when in fact, had they had a creator mindset and embedded creativity into everything they've done in the organization, they wouldn't be in a pickle. They'd have some great ideas and opportunity to change and pivot and really capture um, opportunity in this crisis. But unfortunately, the vast majority of business are not set up this way. There is a great need right now, Doug, for this type of material, for creativity to help people that are stuck. And um, that's what I've set out to do. That's my my platform. That's what the book's about. That's what I do when I'm out consulting or giving keynotes or whatnot. I really, really want to help people embrace the long sort of dormant part of their mind that will help them solve problems creatively. That's your story and you're sticking to it. And let me add to that, uh, page 37, you say, above all else, this is the plain and simple truth of the arrival of the 21st century creative economy. Companies that are able to embrace a new way of thinking creatively will thrive. And those stuck in the analytical past will die. So, Nir, I've got to believe, though, that you run into a lot of people who say something like, I'm not a creative person, Nir. I don't draw portraits, dance ballet, or play the saxophone. That's just not for me. I'm a lawyer or an accountant. I'm an engineer or a nurse. I'm a school teacher or a corporate events planner. I'm not a singer or an actor or an artist or someone in a creative field. What is your response? I, I I'm suspect you hear that a lot. I hear it a lot. And my answer to that is that we are all born creative. So what ends up happening is creativity is part of who we are from birth. I've had some very, very great people, far smarter than I am, help me with some of the research on the book. And we found that creativity takes hold in babies. And it is something that is part and parcel to the human experience. And it's something that we all have in us. And as we get older, right, through systems of schooling or society of different types of pressures and so on and so forth, we see this everywhere in the world, not just in the West, everywhere. Um, We start to kind of, you know, shove down that creativity that gets out and and it's trying to get out. We kind of shove it down and we, we fall in line to that worship of the analytical, the, the spreadsheet logic and, you know, um, the very rigid systems. And we really forget that we were all born creative and we forget that, you know, we have a God given ability in every human heart on earth to solve problems with the full capacity of our mind. Yet we choose to only operate it on half of the 
capacity, you know, forever wondering why we're not getting where we need to go, Doug. Yes, banging our head against the wall. <laughs> you totally. Say, you say that. And I've done it. So I, I know, believe me, I'm not, I wasn't always this way. I'm kind of the school of hard knocks. It's not like, you know, uh, I'm, I wear flowy white robes and, you know, walk around with sandals and uh, ref- ask people to refer to me as, as Guru Siri Siri Bashan. Yes, with no eye contact. Right. With no, you cannot look at me. Yeah. You worked in Hollywood. I know you, you know how to deal with those kind of people. Totally. Yeah. yeah this is, uh, yeah, this is not, uh, anyway. So I, um, I've come to this after many, many years of, of developing these theories and working at, at companies, running my own companies. And, and I think that it's an incredibly powerful tool. And I can't believe this book wasn't written before. Honestly, I, you know, I, I needed something like this five, 10 years ago. I was looking around for a book. Just give me how. I don't need the why. Every book out there is about the why, Doug. I just need the how. Give me the how. I want to, you know, flip through pages. I want to get my highlighter out and I want to circle some stuff and I want to bookmark it and I want to come back to that particular, you know, solution when I need um, that, you know, to, to draw upon. And there's literally no books out there on the how. So I went ahead, found a gap in the market like I've done many times. And I'm sure you have too, Doug. You've seen gaps in the market for marketing or for sales opportunities. And boom, you went right in and, and kind of occupied that gap. And that's what I did with this book. Yes, there were no uh, marketing book podcasts. And uh, I don't think there will be because most people know better than to to start doing this. But you know, you, you do have a really good sense for the just to underscore what you're talking about about the practicality. You have a very good sense for the person that may be sitting there right now listening to this with their arms crossed saying, All right, creative boy, you know, but you say, I know what you're thinking. This creative stuff is neat. But how can it help me in my business? I have real deadlines, real inventory, real customers, and I need a plan for how to grow and improve my business to achieve very specific goals. And none of those goals are quote creative. They are real fiscal objectives and thus need to be treated with gravity. And for those that haven't read the book, uh, that, that, that comes through very uh, clearly in the book, very practical. Now, you mentioned there weren't other books, and I would tend to agree with that. So this will be, we, I'm up to almost 300 episodes of the show, and I think this is only the second one that's very specific about creativity. And the other one was Alan Gannett's book, The Creative Curve, also uh, an excellent book. And there was one thing that really hit home or that I learned anew in his book, which you hammered just as much and explained why. And that is that this idea of creative inspiration, you know, catching lightning in a bottle, it's a total myth. And it's much more about following a system. No doubt. It's a complete and utter fallacy to expect that creativity will hit you and that, you know, you'll be inspired. There is no, listen, my recipe is far more about perspiration than it is inspiration. Mm -hmm. It is not about waiting around and meditating or aligning your chakras or playing, you know, the seven tones of Solomon. Listen, if you're into that, that's totally cool. Like I, you know, I don't want to take away from anybody who's super into that. If it's working for you, then that's great. But this is an actionable sort of setup where, you know, you do it and you do it over and over again. And just like anything in life, you get better and better at it. You know, I I got a little story. I don't know if you want a little story, um, but I got a little story. 
Humans like stories. Okay, good. <laughs> so <laughs> the human brain likes stories. There we go. So I worked as a audio engineer in Hollywood for a long time. I worked on a bunch of hip hop albums. I don't know how that happened, but I was with a um, a company called Le Mobile that was like a remote recording truck. We'd go out and record shows and and then you know mix them and put them out as albums and. You know, I worked on a KRS-One album and all these famous hip-hop artists. And I remember very clearly that there was two groups of people in music. And later I found out that there was those same groups in acting and Hollywood and directors and producers and actors, the whole thing. There is the person who is, you know, on the news, right? They're drunk and they're high and they do drugs and that's how they find their inspiration, right? It wasn't me. I know the listener's asking that. Go ahead. <laughs> and so you have that one group and then you have the other group, which is far more populated and really the majority of people out there. And that's the repeatable success people, right? That's the, you know, the great actors and, and all those people that we love. We might think that we are nothing compared to their creativity level. Wow, they're so creative. I wish I can be like that. But Doug, all of them have a routine. I've seen it firsthand. Yeah. They have uh, you know, a notebook that they keep with a bunch of ideas. They have, you know, they put notes in a phone. They have a process to repeat their creativity. And what I've done is I've sort of cherry picked from the actor and the musician model. And I cherry picked from, you know, I, I ran a furniture manufacturing business at one point. And then I cherry picked from all of these things and created a model that anybody can follow to spark creativity no matter what they do. Because creativity is so ingrained in who we are, I feel like we can really teach people how to do it. They just need a recipe to follow. And that's what I attempted to do in the book. Yes. And that reminds me of I, when I was a kid, I think watching some TV show, like a, an interview show, and they were interviewing the songwriter, singer, uh, Neil Sedaka. And that was the first time I heard of that. They said, "What? How do you how do you do it?" And he he basically said, "Well, I I start at eight a.m. every morning, Monday through Friday, and I work until six. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, it's like work. <laughs> <laughs> I sit down and I have a process, and I just keep keep working at it." So let me just read one other quote here uh, from the beginning of chapter four, where you say, "Throughout history, creativity has been shrouded in mystery." It's a realm only a few can access that forever shuts the rest of us out, a calling so high and noble that it is unobtainable by mere mortals. We are taught over and over that creativity is something you cannot learn. It is something you either have or don't have. Those who have it possess some kind of otherworldly wisdom and grace that we can only wish we had. And then you go on to say that the worst myth is that creativity relies on inspiration. And apropos of nothing, Nir, when I read that article, I thought, you know, you could swap out the word creativity and put in search engine optimization. And <laughs> it's the same thing <laughs> where people think, oh, SEO, it's mysterious and only certain smart people understand it. It's nonsense. But I would now, I want to get religious on you, Nir. I'd like to talk about your Holy Trinity, the Holy Trinity, but I'm not referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about your trinity of creativity, and this is what, for me, kind of kicks off a lot of this real 
practical uh, steps that are in your book. Can, can you explain this, what you call the trinity of, of creativity? Sure. Yeah. The trinity of creativity is a method that I have developed to help anybody put, you know, pen to paper and start to develop the process of creativity no matter what you do. You can be in medicine, you can be in, I don't know, manufacturing, you can be in marketing, you could be in sales. It doesn't matter what you do. This is a process that can generate creativity. Now, I've done this by myself. I've done it with, you know, a group of C-suite um, you, you know, leadership, and I've done it in a room with 1,400 people. So it'll work regardless of if you want to do it alone or with, with a bunch of people. And I'm thinking this is what that interview, uh, um, Doug, that you saw when you were a kid where Neil Sadaka was saying, hey, you know, I've got a routine. Well, <laughs> this is kind of my routine, right? And the concept is the biggest way you can think about your product or service. It's like the uh, satellite image where you can't see the details and you know, maybe you could see kind of trends coming and going, but this is the five-year outlook. This is the 10-year outlook. It's the biggest view. Let me, let me interject it. So it's, yeah. so the people, uh, the people playing the home game, it's concept. And then number two is idea. And then three is, is execution. And just so you know, as I was reading through the book, I started writing everything about my business. So in other words, actually, you have very specific practical things. I was oh, following cool. instructions, Mr. Bashan. You said, it. I'd like you to do a brief exercise. So I started doing it and it was, it was great. And it's also the kind of thing companies could be doing like every quarter, revisiting. It seems like that would be a good idea. But, but that's, the, so I, I interrupted you. You were explaining the idea of the concept. And, and I yeah. think one of the thing to add is that people tend to jump right to what they do. This is not what the, the concept necessarily is. No, that's usually the execution, yeah, right? So, so, yeah, the concept is the highest level idea, uh, the highest level of what you're doing. The idea is like the middle level, right? It's like the street view. Right. Now you could see trends. You could see things come and go. You see what the product really does. So what would be an example to- of a concept for a maybe a company that people are familiar with? Um, let's take, uh, I don't know, Honda, right? I've worked with them before mm-hmm. and have done this very exercise. Everybody, you know, who I was meeting with or, or a fair majority of people were like, near our concept is we make cars, man. We make cars. Um, and that's our concept cars. And I was like, no, no guys, not really. You know, let's look it up. Let's take it up a little bit and let's look at it in a higher level. And so, you know, after a few hours of going back and forth and really exploring it and teaching them this Trinity, we came up with, I think mobility was their mm-hmm. uh, concept. They were in the business of moving a person from point A to point B. And that was the highest level of perspective that we can offer. Mm-hmm. Now that can change, you know, depending on, you know, whatever's going on in that particular quarter. Right. Or and maybe like the changes. freedom that mobility can offer, something like that. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So freedom was one of those things that that definitely uh, was mentioned on the concept level. So then only this. <laughs> so it sounds like you spent the first half of the day pumping the brakes to use an automotive uh, analogy, <laughs> trying, totally. to, trying to move them up uh, just a bit. And actually, that probably made the rest of the day more productive. So then you were you go into – so that's the concept, now the idea. So the idea is kind of like the middle-level idea, the kind of that street view, right? And so for Honda, I would – you know, again, there's no right – 
a wrong answers here. It's what you feel. Creativity is who you are, literally. And how you would answer this question, Doug, if you were at Honda and how I would answer that are completely different things. So I, I, I believe in the power, uh, the individuality of creativity so, so very much that I've run this with similar companies, you know, um, pizza franchises, for, for example. That's, ex- that's the sample I use in the book, the pizza franchise. And I've run it with different franchises that you and I would swear are exactly the same, mm-hmm. you know, um, yet the answers were totally different because the DNA of who they are as a brand uh, comes through in creativity. The idea is really about that mid-level view. For Honda, it might be the CRV. It might be, you know, the Accord, you know, a legacy wagon that they've had for, you know, 20, 30 years now. It might be a car. There are very, very many um, sort of areas in that idea that help you kind of strain um, the essence of the concept. Right. And then in your book, you say an example would be uh, like a nurse. The idea is uh, a head nurse or like a pediatric nurse. Yeah, it's a more specific version of your overall concept. Right. How well, a manifestation of that of that concept in You bet. Ways. And the way that you answer that question is going to be yours and yours alone. And what I'm really building here, Doug, is a creative and marketing advantage. It's it's market differentiation for somebody that can you know, literally do it. It's not, you know, you're not sitting in a circle and dreaming about what you think you are. You're literally doing this and you can repeat it over and over and get kind of different, um, different answers depending on what it is that you need to, to do. Mm -hmm. So then we go down to where everyone is probably initially most comfortable, the actual execution. Yes. So this is where people feel really, really comfortable. Um, this is the day-to-day. This is the atoms moving. This is the electron microscope view where you see, you know, atoms moving around. That's the most specific, specific form of your product or service. So at the execution level, you're getting, you know, for Honda, it's the CRV, you know, H model with bucket seats and power windows and AM FM cassettes. <laughs> right. Remember cassette? Yeah. Um, it, For the you younger know, it, listeners, it was a little cartridge. <laughs> well, now we have to explain what yellow pages and newspapers are. Exactly. So it's the most very, very, very specific. It's literally that model, you know, with that trim and that color and that automatic lip gate and all of those things that make up that very particular model. Sadly, most of us stay in the execution realm um, our entire careers. It's crazy to me. And we wonder why we can't come up with new ideas. Well, this method, the Trinity, will help you take that execution and say, how did we get here? Let's level up. And the level up then becomes the idea. And if you don't like the execution, you tweak the idea. And then once you tweak the idea, you know, um, it just kind of like dominoes sort of uh, uh, follows downhill. And then all of a sudden you're, you're ending up with different executions. You can run this no matter what you do from real estate to whatever, uh, manufacturing or medicine or even, um, I don't know, uh, um, you know, heavy, heavy equipment lifting. I, I did a, a, a keynote for a heavy 
uh, equipment manufacturer and they were they were loving it because it was it would give them kind of options that they've never thought about yes. they've never really looked at their business in this type of level it was just kind of hey we we have this product that's the way it was done yesterday near so it's gonna work tomorrow right and i was like no wrong wrong no you know innovation and change and creativity is such an essential part of the fabric of your business that having a trinity and having a, a way to understand this on paper is incredibly effective. Yes, and this just these few pages. If again, this is like so much in, in marketing where you, you don't, if you can hire near, but just to get started, you don't have to do this perfectly. If you just do a little bit of this, it would make your marketing and your sales so much more uh, productive. And uh, it brings to mind uh, the, you know, the notion from Theodore Levitt, he wrote this article in the Harvard Business Review in the 1960 or something called Marketing Myopia. And they talked about how companies don't really understand what problem it is that they're solving. So this kind of reminded me of that where he gives example of the railroads, you know, going back 150 years and they thought they were in the railroad business. Now, for those paying close attention, that sounds like the execution to me <laughs> at the bottom part of this trinity. No doubt. And, and instead, they didn't realize it's like if they, you know, if if they had maybe gone through an exercise like this, or you know, if they had the culture to do that, they would have realized that they were actually in the business of getting stuff from point A to point B. Back to like your example with Honda. And so as a result, you could argue that the railroads missed out on air cargo. They missed out on trucking. They yeah. thought they thought they were in the railroad business, which was uh, very much in the, the execution stage. So this is uh, something that, I mean, just if they just thought about that, because it seems like it, gen- it, yeah, it goes way beyond marketing and sales. It generates these ideas of, oh, well, if we're in the business of mobility, then that that may say, well, that we could be going, you know, far beyond just uh, cars. And, and I know Honda is, is there, but they're saying that's the real problem we solve for people. And it also brings to mind, sorry to be talking so much, but I, no, have lots, I love this. I have lots of audio tape I bought at Costco today. So I, <laughs> but there was a talk I saw Guy Kawasaki give once and he, I, I don't have, I can't remember all the details, but he talked about how in the old days, they would, uh, these companies would go and they were, get ice out of these lakes and then they would these big blocks and they would transport that it was back when before you know refrigeration refrigeration yeah, was yeah. widespread and so they would get all these big blocks of ice and send them off to wherever they were they were supposed to go and then along came this uh, revolution of where uh, they were companies were able to keep things cold in like warehouses or something like that and they pretty much wiped out the ice the people in the ice business because they didn't need these big blocks of ice anymore. And then along came refrigerators that could be used in the home. And that had a big impact on the the people that had sort of usurped the, the ice business. And what they all seemed to have missed was that, you know, the, the guys that were pulling the ice out of the lakes, they thought they were in the ice business. But the truth is <laughs> their concept was that they were in the business of keeping things cold. Yep. And so they completely missed other opportunities as they come up. And if they'd realized that, you know, I, and I, I don't mean to be critical of them, and I'm sure there aren't too many people in the ice business still listening to the Marketing Book Podcast, uh, but, 
but, it, but well, if they do, they I'm sure they're using horse-drawn carts. But right, they, yeah, uh, exactly. But if they thought, you know, we're actually in the business of, you know, keeping things cold. Well, what else could we be doing? Oh, well, maybe we could set up these warehouses. Maybe we should be making refrigerators, you know, that, that type of thing. So moving on, explain what you mean when you say that most businesses treat symptoms, not the root cause of the problem. And this is so relevant to all my sales listeners. <laughs> how, how is that symptom versus root cause an opportunity uh, to be more creative? And, and if you could talk about the importance of, of positivity and a lot of that negative head trash we all seem to have. Yeah, no doubt. So I, I agree with you 100%. Most businesses today are really looking at symptoms instead of the root cause. Um, you even see it in medicine, you know, you see, you know, somebody who has a cold or whatever, and, you know, they're unable to tell us why we're getting cold, Doug, but they're able to give us cough syrup and stuff like that. It, it's just, it's a symptom of the analytical mindset that will not accept anything from the creative side to fully balance our, our mind and our thinking. Part of that comes from um, the ability of our mind to look at things negatively because looking at things negatively, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 years ago enabled us to survive, right? right? We were skeptical. We were, you know, we were in a cave somewhere and we found a water source and, you know, half the time it had poop in it and half the time it didn't. And we wanted to drink from it. And we were like, you know what? This probably had poop and we probably shouldn't drink out of it. And that most likely saved our lives, right? Right. Now, fast forward, we're, you know, in 2020, we still have that built in us. We still have that negativity sort of built in. We still us. have primitive brains. It's just that the whole world has gotten more advanced, but I, we're still the, the, our brains pretty much work the same way as our, our primitive ancestors, I would think. Yeah, at breakneck speeds, we've gotten to where we are now, and our 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 you know primitive brains are still trying to catch up. Mm -hmm. And that feeling that you have, you know, where you know um, you're a Millwall fan and you're honking at a lady for crossing the street, is the same feeling that you had when you know. 50,000 years ago, you were chased by some some beast. It's the same release of hormones, and it's the same construct of the mind that tells you, oh, oh no, this is going to kill me, but it's not. You just wait a couple extra minutes. The lady will cross. Our brains haven't caught up to it yet, Doug, and so we have a situation where we see a symptom of a problem, something goes wrong, and we're like, oh, we freak out, right? We release those same, you know, uh, kind of... Um, uh, hormones and and our our response system goes no we got to fix it blah 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 instead of saying hey time out this is a minor thing let's start to look at the bigger picture and then see how those symptoms creatively are resulting from the problem and see how we can solve the problem yeah you're right rarely is a problem an island in the business it's usually tied to a couple of different things that work in concert to bring either success or failure. So I just want to say one thing to the Millwall fans. Uh, Nier wouldn't make fun of you if he didn't really like you, okay? The, the, the symptom may look like he doesn't like you, but deep down he does. And uh, <laughs> But also some of my friends like uh, John Asperian and uh, Peter Sumpton, both Liverpool fans, uh, they argue that your uh, 
position on Millwall actually endears you to the 19 other English Premier League <laughs> teams. <laughs> so, or any any team that you pick on, the other 19 exactly. will, will probably You're going like. to have to pick a team now. You're you're like you're, oh. you've been indoctrinated, you're in. Yes. I'm ready for you to pick a team right now here on the show. Really? How about Arsenal? Mm. Really? Well, so I, I like several of these teams the more I learn about them. And uh, if I see uh, your uh, West Ham playing, then I'm going to probably uh, start taking pictures of the screen and tweeting it and copying you on that. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated by Arsenal for simply because I was in my misspent youth, I was in the United States Army field artillery. So they have a little cannon on their jersey. I mean, I'm easy. I, I don't know. So I started reading up That's on it. who they were. Is that okay to root for them? Um, you know, I mean, I prefer you, you know, they're in London, just there. like, uh, your uh, West Ham and your, uh, Millwall homeboys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, you could do better than Arsenal, Doug. Really? You're, you're a smart guy. Yeah. You know, Arsenal who, like fans who? are West not. West Ham or? You bet. You gotta, you gotta come home. You gotta come home to West Ham United. I need, to, I need input from the listeners. The I mean, if there's the Arsenal listeners that think that I should stay or others, I, I need guidance, okay? I'm being vulnerable here. And I seem to recall uh, in this book called uh, The Creator Mindset, you, you talked about vulnerability. As a matter of fact, you write that three attributes of our personalities are essential compared with all others in overcoming problems creatively. And I was so interested at the three that you then show why they're so important. I hope we can talk about this. They are humor, empathy, and courage. Humor, empathy, and courage. Can you talk about those? And also for somebody who say, oh, I'm not, I'm not funny, or, you know, uh, I think I understand what empathy is, or oh, I'm, I, I, you know, I'll get in trouble for being courageous. But if you could, if you could unpack that, as the kids say. Sure. Yeah. So for me, those three attributes are incredibly important when thinking creatively, right? Humor isn't necessarily about being funny. It's about looking at the folly of the human condition and recognizing that it's sometimes it's okay to let go a little bit. You know, um, we have so much anxiety built up, Doug, because we want everything to go right all the time. We want it to go right and we, we never want to fail. And, you know, it just builds up this sense of dread in us. And I guess also also being able to see your own situation for what it is. Totally. Yeah, you know, and, and that for me comes from humor and allowing yourselves to say, you know what, I failed and that was that was kind of funny, you know, um, or, or at least in a way that allows you to learn from it. Humor does this amazing thing where it unlocks uh, our ability to look at a problem and it unlocks the pressure to get it right, to solve that problem right. And it doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't have to be, you know, a laugh out loud, ha, ha, ha kind of moment. It just has to be understanding the folly of the human condition and understanding our place in the universe. You know, when um, that proposal is going out with an error, it might just not be the end of the world. And that, for for me, humor is able to sort of solve that problem and, and help unlock our, you know, Get grip on getting it right. Yeah, some perspective, almost as if you're looking in on the room <laughs> that totally. you're that you're having the meeting with. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, the other one that I like there is um, empathy. Uh, yeah, empathy and there's actually is, yeah, there's an internal and external empathy. Really, really important. And I, I often argue that that's probably the most important word in marketing and sales is empathy. And so people understand it's not sympathy or compassion or pity. It's 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 different from that. Yeah, totally. It's different. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people get that confused. Um, yeah, it's putting yourself me, in someone else's shoes, but it goes. You go into greater detail about that. So when I see something about empathy in a book, I I start getting pretty fired up. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really so. I look at creatively empathy in into two. I divide empathy into two sections. One is an internal empathy. It's when you look at issues inside your company or your career, even with creativity. And the other one is external. It's the result of looking outside your company. Um, internal. Empathy for me, it boils down to doing some real good listening. And that listening doesn't come through all the channels we traditionally think they come in. It could be a hallway conversation. It could be, you know, a, a road trip to see a client or, or, or something like that. When you unlock a bit of perspective, really, by understanding that, you know, listening to one another and really understanding where somebody comes from. It's not just enough to put the shoe on the other foot. You really need to put the shoe on the other foot and then change your perspective into a deep and utter understanding of that person's perspective and that person's uh, uh, feelings in order to derive creative meaning from it. It's not just enough to be on the outside and say, I think I know what you're talking about. It's really important to to fully um, understand where they're coming from. And then external empathy for me is really about listening to external factors and what they're telling you. This isn't about, you know, the hallway conversation. This is really about looking outside your business with honesty and without pretense or judgment and understanding that, you know, empathy externally is about figuring out what other people are doing and then figuring out what you can do to borrow from those methods and then use creativity to make them your own. Mm -hmm. The world is filled with some really, really good ideas, but most companies get, and, and even people in their career, most professionals get kind of stuck saying, you know, I don't know what to do. There's nothing new. There's nothing out there. If you're using empathy, you can then look at a competitor and say, you know what? They're doing this in a certain way. You know, we would have never sent out a coupon for this, but you kind of look at that and you say, what can I learn from their coupon? Why are they decentralized in their office? It, working from home, why would we do that? We would never do that. And most companies say that. Most people in their careers say that. But I challenge you and I challenge your listeners. Um, I know you have a large C-suite listenership. I know you have a lot of people in marketing and in sales. I challenge you, the listener, to look at your external empathy. And instead of say what, you know, what the usual is, which is, ah, whatever, they're, you know, they're doing it this way. That's not us. I want you to look at what they're doing and see what you can then creatively implement into your company. I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised. Oh, and there's so many uh, case studies, uh, both in your book and elsewhere, that talk about this understanding externally, uh, as you, you break it out internally and external a bit. People say, well, you know, what have you learned from reading all these books? And I say, well, not much because I'm a slow learner. But uh, 
one of the one of the biggest takeaways from all these books is, and I talk about this in um, you know talks I've given, and it is the most successful companies have the deepest understanding of their customers. Full stop. No doubt. And the way you do that is by observing them and understanding where the friction is uh, in the in their life. And so, just just to to add to your your part about the role that empathy plays in creativity. Also, there's courage. Talk about that. Because I think there's, it may be underreported, but there's a lot of fearful people out there that are really, maybe they're afraid to speak up uh, or they've been punished for that. I'm, I'm sure we've all worked at companies where you know they've said, basically, look, when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. Yeah. We'll ask you for it. That kind of thing. <laughs> no, we'll tell you what your opinion should be. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, listen, there, you know, bad leadership <laughs> and ineffective leadership is is, you know, everywhere in business today and and there is really a need for people to to begin to shift their mindset to start thinking about things a little bit differently. I think as human beings we get very comfortable in the now. We get very comfortable with yesterday and we assume that tomorrow will be the same. And out of that we have a derivative of several, several symptoms. And, you know, one that you just talked about that, that's the kind of thing that comes up when people get really comfortable, they say stuff like that. So for me, courage is really about, you know, having the guts to look at yourself and recognize that there's room for improvement. That's the type of courage that creativity brings on. This isn't about, you know, going into somebody's office and, you know, slamming your hand down and saying, I know what we should do with this company. <laughs> don't be that That's, employee. <laughs> don't, don't be that guy. Yeah. Um, you know, this is really about an internal courage. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, Doug, every, every tool in the book is essentially free, right? There is no new equipment that you have to buy. There is no, you know, new employees that you have to hire or something like that. Every one of these tools comes from a real shift, an internal work that the reader does to begin to shift their mindset from a true and tried process of analytics into combining the analytics and the creative. So courage for me is the ability of a human being to accept that there is a better way to do something and to look deep within themselves to understand that, you know, Courage deals with believing in yourself and knowing that the direction that you're going in is right for you because it is led from who you are as a creative human being. And that essentially is who we are as people. Yes. And for those who are leading companies, the more that you can foster a courageous environment where you're not, or where people feel safe to come up with these di these uh, different types of ideas. Uh, that is uh, such a competitive advantage. So moving on, there was a quote from your book that I, I just had to tweet out. <laughs> it said, much of our success is all about how we decide to spend and make the most of the precious resource of time. Talk a bit about how time and our relationship with it, how that affects creativity. And you in the book, you talk about you know things like meetings and shutting up. I hear that a lot from people. But there was also yeah. one called uh, micro-listening. Yeah. So for me, it is incredibly important to start listening a little bit more. We, we 
you know, this is rare for me. I'm, I'm talking a lot. Um, and you know, I, I have a keynote that I deliver a couple of keynotes and, and that's cool. You know, I do talking then, but when I'm out consulting and stuff like that, I am generally the guy who talks the least. And why do I do that, Doug? Is because the amount of listening, um, and learning that you can do from listening is unbelievably strategically adv- uh, uh, advantageous to people. And yet so many people don't do it. It's crazy to me. It's like, just listen. You'll find what the marketplace is telling you. You'll find what is out there that you need to learn. And not only that, it's like we were talking earlier. You were mentioning, you know, that having an ability to know who that customer is, is critical in business, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for me, it's really about not only understanding that customer, um, as we talked about earlier, but it's about understanding that that customer will continually change. And what you've listened to and what you think that you're on track um, to sort of pursue from yesterday might change tomorrow, might change next week. It is a continual listening and a process of understanding sort of what is really going on out there. And that for me is, is around listening. Let me quote from um, the book. You say, I once worked for a brilliant chief marketing officer of a fortune 500 company, no matter how much money was spent on testing the effectiveness of the advertising, public relations or marketing he was putting out. He had an inexpensive yardstick by which he measured the effectiveness of any new initiative. He micro-listened. Can you explain what this micro-listening is of which you speak? So I love it, right? So micro-listening is sometimes when, I, when I'm when i out talking about this, people get overwhelmed. They say, Nir, you know, do I have to listen on it? We have five different social networks, right? Twitter and Insta and all this stuff. And how do I listen to? I get overwhelmed. Do I listen to this person? Do I listen to that person? So what this guy did, which which I think is really cool, Doug, is that he kind of he would listen to just a few people that he selected and trusted. He didn't have to select, you know, a huge amount of people. He would just ask a very small group of people, hey, what is your opinion about this? What is your opinion about this product or service? Take a look at this marketing initiative. What do you think? So on and so forth. And he'd change it around. You know, he'd ask a few different people in a, at different settings. Um, he found that asking people on the weekend at a barbecue was far more effective. You know, showing them something on their on his phone was far more effective than, you know, calling them up on a Tuesday, you know, at three o'clock or something like that. But he had this method of micro listening where he he took the sample size and really made it small. And from that, he derived some really interesting creative feedback based on just listening to a few people of, of a trusted sort of inner circle to help him determine whether something was working or not. Yes, that brought to mind for me this notion of like, for instance, we want to learn to keep up with what's going on in marketing and sales. You can, you know, you can read books, but there's also certain websites that you can go to, and there are a lot of them are really, really, really good. But for me, I have to say, all right, well, what are what are four? that I can go to because I'm confident that if there's something yeah. I need to know, it's going to be on one of those four. Could I go to 27? Yes. But what are the ones that I've settled on because I simply don't have enough time and I'm confident that, that I'm going to get uh, the the best information there and it's it's never going to be perfect. So there's just a couple other 
concepts uh, I wanted to ask you about. And one of them has already had an impact on me. So I have this uh, journaling app on my computer and phone called Day One, D-A-Y-O-N-E. And it's just basically you just type and journal, and I just find it easier to do that. And I don't always do it. Sometimes months go by before I've put something on there, but it helps to untangle your thoughts and, and that sort of thing. And it occurred to me that I could actually be doing more. And one of those things could be documenting little victories that I've had. And I guess I was sort of smacking my forehead as I was reading this. Explain what a little victory is and why that is so important for people to be mindful of. Yeah. So a little victory is a small goal that you achieve on the on the longer route to a big victory. We are taught to believe that unless we pursue the big victory, right? That like huge win, yay, you know, that everything that happened along the way doesn't matter. And I have a very interesting story in the book about a guy who sold a bunch of ice cream machines, right? And his first idea in what all of our first ideas usually are is an analytical sort of construct. He thought the way to sell more machines is volume, 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 right? That's how we're going to sell more stuff, volume. We need more people to sell to. And so, you know, he started working on volume, but he couldn't get the volume going because there was, I don't know, not uh, the demand wasn't there. I, I really don't know why, but one day he stumbled upon an order, um, you know, a particular restaurant that ordered a bunch of these machines. And he went out to see what all the fuss was about. And you saw there was a line out the door and he said, you know what, I'm going to try the food, you know, this is probably a decent, you know, uh, food or whatnot. So he stood in line and then had the best hamburger that he'd ever had in his entire life, Doug. And that guy was Ray Kroc and the company is McDonald's. So, if he would have just stuck to the big victory, he'd be selling, you know, ice cream machines, you know, that kind of where that story would have started and stopped. But as that, as entrepreneurs and as leaders, even people in their, you know, in the, the middle of their career trying to kind of get to the next level, we are not piecing together those little victories enough and looking at their creative potential. In those little victories, they might have the potential to take you away from that large target that you started off, you know, going toward. And that's okay because, in fact, it's probably better than okay. Maybe it's the best thing ever. And allowing ourselves to participate and to, um, you know, enjoy and celebrate those little victories is something that your listeners can do today, right? They're listening to this podcast. They're like, okay, I'm kind of convinced that, you know, I need to be more creative in my business, but what can I do today? Like, I don't need artsy fartsy stuff. What can I do today? And one of those things is look at, take a look at the last six months of your career or your business or whatever your product or service is doing in the market. Look at those wins. Start putting together, hey, you know, where where is this roadmap taking me? And is it taking me away from the North Star or guiding me toward it? And either way is a victory. Yeah, it brought to mind a series of breadcrumbs <laughs> that start to either reinforce that you're in the right direction or might yep. start to inform that a course correction might make sense. You know, and it's the sort of thing where, like I can remember when I was much younger, I was talking to this, uh, I was in grad school, didn't know what I wanted to do when I grow up. That's still the case near, sadly. But I was talking to this guy that I'd gone to school with and I'd been in the army with. 
and he's he was working in finance in New York, and he said, "Have you ever thought of going into advertising? I know you really well." <laughs> I just thought, "No, it never occurred to me." And he goes, "You ought to look at that," and and I. I read a book about it and uh, called Ogilvy on Advertising. And I said, oh my goodness, that's what I want to do. But it was a sort of thing. Yeah. That's one of the two books that's had the biggest uh, impact on my career. You know how the right book at the right time can really uh, get you headed in the right direction. But it was the same sort of thing where little victories where he was like, Doug, why is this not obvious to you that that's what what you want to do? Let me just ask two other two other things I wanted to ask about the book. I'm sorry we're not going to be able to get to to everything, but in the book you write that the creator mindset includes fighting comfort, fighting comfort, getting out of your comfort zone, and fighting the death grip technology has on our lives. Why do you place an emphasis on those two things? Yeah, so technology for me is the great sort of killer of creativity. Not all <laughs> technology, but most technology. Why? Is because this stuff that we have on our phone, these apps, are literally designed to trigger a biological response, a reward um, sort of center, almost like, you know, sex or chocolate or, you know, eating something really rich and delicious. It's that same sort of, you know, um, neurological play that these apps do. And what ends up happening is we become comfortable and we want to have an app that does this or that for us. And we further, further pump the iron on the analytical side and we further, further let the um, creative side go. I am not advocating for, you know, a horse-drawn carriage here and going back to a kerosene lamp. Mm-hmm. I am and, and advocating- blocks of ice. Right, blocks of ice. <laughs> I'm advocating for a better balance. Listen, I, we have in the U.S. especially, in in you know, I would venture to say um, around the world for for the most part, we have gotten so far on the extreme. Right, we're either far left or we're far right, and you know, we we hold on to those sort of beliefs. What I advocate is for people to come to the middle, Doug. It's about time we start coming more to the center. The, the, the fact that we've been relying on one side of our, our thinking and one side of our brain so heavily outweighs us from making really balanced decisions. And if we activate and we learn to activate the creative part of the mind and we use it in harmony with the analytical side, we're then able to say, you know what, we don't need this particular technology. I'm just going to write this down or I'm not going to, you know, need to do that right now with tech. I can do it in a different way, in a more meaningful way. So for me, comfort is literally the killer of any type of innovation because when you're comfortable, you rest, you're complacent, you don't want to do anything, you don't want to innovate, you don't want to create, you feel like you've arrived. And for me, that is the killer of creativity because it won't allow you to really be who you are and who you need to be. It kind of stops your development right in the middle. Yeah, only through adversity does much happened in my in my life looking back and i think it's true for a lot of folks back to the the tech though you had uh, some examples of things that people should be doing and i'm thinking gosh you know i should do this one of them was schedule a tech detox day just try one day and uh and there was another one that just has to be mentioned you 
must accept that multitasking is BS. <laughs> and you even have an exercise here. It goes for a, a page or so. Uh, it was just very interesting. Demonstrating exactly why multitasking actually takes so much longer to accomplish something. Yeah. Did you do the exercise? No, I didn't. I But I, uh, well, I got distracted and I started doing some other stuff. But, uh, <laughs> No, but it was interesting because I, I saw what you were talking about there, and I and I I already kind of have bought into that um, multitasking. It's you know it's just sort of a it's alluring. It makes you feel like you're doing something, but you don't actually totally. get it done. Uh, get it done. So the one other thing I wanted to ask about was complacency, and you even had a case study in there of, of a former client of mine back when I was in my ad days in New York, Toys R Us. And, uh, and I had no, uh, I was not responsible for the, uh, it was you collapse. It no, was you. It was actually before the time that you were talking about, but, um, I can remember like in the early nineties, they were, that's when they were a client and they were going like gangbusters. Oh, and I remember God, talking to yeah. them and one day they said, uh, you know, what we're really worried about is Walmart. And I just remember thinking Walmart, you guys are worried about Walmart. They don't sell as many toys as you do. <laughs> they said, Yeah. You need to know more about Walmart, but then you go on to talk about how they they weren't really ready for the the online thing. But you talk about three distinct flavors that complacency uh, usually manifests itself in, and I've seen this with businesses. I think I've uh, you know been associated with some businesses that were the guilty of these things. I was wondering if you could just touch on them. It's the early warning, or exploitative sales, and the paralysis of choice. Yeah, so I, you know, there's more than three reasons why companies get complacent, but God bless my editor. She was like, Nair, you got to pick the top three. Okay, we don't, you know, you can't burn pages here. Yeah, yeah maybe you there's think. a few, but these three, it just brought to, to mind so many other case studies where, yep, that that's that was the nerve. Uh, that yeah, these, these are there. totally, Doug, these are kind of like the hot spot, right? The early warning for me is, the, you know, the competitor on the horizon or the product or service that is being changed and innovated um, and, you know, creativity being added to it. What are you doing to recognize the early warning and be able to to change it? Um, Toys R Us was a case study that we used in the book because literally they ignored all of these signals saying that the change is coming in a way that people want to buy toys. And the change is coming in a way that people want to experience retail. How true that is today. It's unbelievable. So there is generally an early warning that occurs in your business, no matter what you do, that will signal a change and the ability to recognize that warning and heed it and actually act upon it is incredibly, incredibly important. The second thing that I talk about is the exploitative sale. This is another thing that can um, completely derail you into complacency. And that is when you feel and Doug, I've seen this, and, and I'm sure you have too, with, with maybe your clients or maybe even your own company. Um, but I've seen people get into a mindset where they feel like they are providing a product or service to somebody that they cannot get anywhere else. 
we are the only company in the world that does this and people will pay us or damn them. I, I literally heard that many, many times, embarrassingly, many, many times at company. They feel like their piece of software that does X, Y, and Z is the only piece of equipment, you know, software that can possibly ever do that job. And that's a form of complacency because when you feel that you have a product or service in the marketplace that can only be consumed in your way and on your terms, you're already complacent. And we talk about Columbia House. Do you remember them where you put a yeah like a penny and then you send it in, you get like, you know, a hundred DVDs or something like that. Or they were CDs. making money, even though they offered seven CDs for a penny to get started. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and you know, they you had to sign a contract with them. I think they went out of business in 2014 or 2015 and like the internet lit up. So if you google, you know, Columbia House out of business, you'll see people like thank God I was still under contract from 19, you know, 96. Right. Yeah, and also that exploitative sale also brought to mind something we won't be able to talk about, but it, the you have a a large section in the book about egos. And why totally. egos are so destructive, and I just there's a lot of a bad. Uh, you even called it uh, ego cancer as it relates to exploitative sales, uh, because I've even worked at companies where they thought they were the bee's knees. You know, they just thought their <laughs> customers had no other alternative. And I remember once working <clears throat> at an agency, and they said, "What would be the one thing you wish you could, you know, we could have as an agency?" And I said, "I'd like to have a competitor to us right across the street." <laughs> <laughs> so that we would stop thinking that you know they I don't know but it was it was kind of tied in with the with the ego thing. So the third one was the paralysis of choice. Yeah, this is another one I see a lot. This is where people tell me near we're super creative. Look at all these ideas I have. You know, uh, I have this idea to change this product. I have that idea to, to modify this service. I've been looking at my, um, you know, billing model and I could do a la carte. I could do lump sum. I could do this, you know, and they get really, really excited. This, this actually happened to Pan Am. Um, they were one of the first companies to innovate the travel experience. Um, and they had, you know, this is during the, the 70s, they had a crisis on their hand. People were hijacking planes and, you know, doing very, very bad things. And they developed some screening technology and, you know, um, very similar to what we do at the TSA today, you know, how we go through and mm -hmm. show our ID and put our bags on and they get scanned and metal detectors. They, they had all of this stuff before anybody else. And they literally chose to do nothing. They ran into a paralysis of choice. They felt like, you know what? We are the biggest and the best, and we're going to stay that way. We need to do nothing. Let's continue on our current track. And that is a sign of complacency, too. When you have too many choices and you don't know kind of how to whittle it down into the most effective choice and then move forward with what the market needs and what the market is telling you, um, you're going to go out of business as well. Yeah, you say paralysis of choice tends to happen to companies and to careers, at the height of their success, though not always, because things are going so well and so much creativity is being generated that there are many creative options to consider. So, Nir, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I want readers to understand that creativity is in all of us. It is super essential to understand that creativity is in all of us. It is 
in our bone marrow. It is down to our DNA and how we choose to exercise creativity and how we choose to bring it out into the world will always be our market differentiator. It will always be ours and ours alone, uniquely manifested in how we bring it out into the universe. And that for me is incredibly important in business today because I believe that enterprise, free enterprise, the system that we practice in the West is the greatest sort of um, lifter of humanity all over the world. There has been no system that has lifted more people out of poverty around the world than free enterprise and the way that it's practiced. Now, is it perfect? No. Does it have you know some flaws? Yes. But there is no better system than free enterprise. And I want people to understand how to use creativity to develop businesses, to develop product services, to get to the next level in their career. Because I believe there's an altruistic side effect to this whole thing, Doug. I believe that the better that we get at enterprise and the better that we get and in how we creatively approach products and services, I just feel that we will continue to see even an improvement in what we are seeing around the world, which is a gradual but unmistakable lift from poverty around the world. Yes, and you have a very uh, inspirational conclusion to the book that talks about all, all these things that are possible. The, one of the th- other things that was just so um, Im- such an important reminder for me in reading the book is the importance of creativity now versus <laughs> versus a few years ago, because uh, we're at such parity everywhere else that your competitive advantage uh, really is the ability to think creatively to help solve problems for your for your customers. So what is one thing? You mentioned one, but we can mention that again, but what is one thing a listener could do today? Just one thing to put in action one of the one of the 92 ideas <laughs> from your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the 91th idea, um I think that uh, the 91st I, I should say. That I think okay, so y- you're Hopefully, your listeners are like, okay, Nair, I kind of get it. I'm creative. You know, I, I feel it. But then the second thing that I want listeners to take away is that the self-doubt monster that we have deep within us, Doug, is almost as effective as creativity. It is the monster that will shut down yes. all of your creative enterprise and keep pushing you towards where you're comfortable, which is the analytic. And I feel like as a society, we have lost amazing potential because we listened to the self-doubt monster. Mm. We could have cured cancer by now, Doug. We could have put a woman on Mars. We could have had every single dream of humanity by now if we didn't let that nagging self-doubt monster constantly attack us constantly doubt our engineering and our you know plans for the rocket ship that was going to go to mars and you know constantly doubt that we're working on some you know cure for cancer and oh nobody's going to take this seriously oh you know i'm going to lose my reputation oh you know all of these things we convince ourselves of that our analytical constructs have damaged and taken humanity back so, so very far from where we need to be. So my my 
So take us back I to guess. that one one thing that a person could do. So if somebody's listening to this, they've been driving to work, assuming they're having still having to go to an office. Um, they're now late for work because we've gone on so long and they're sitting there <laughs> they're sitting there in their car trying to listen to the to the end of this and we're trying to give them one thing they could do when they get inside besides uh, sneak in the building without the boss seeing you come in late. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be to recognize self-doubt is existing in you and that is preventing creativity from getting out. It's kind of like, you know, uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous system, just recognizing that you have a problem will open the gates to allowing for that problem to get resolved. Yeah. And there's a whole section in here about about self-doubt. So what books have most inspired your working career near? So I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I go through about a title a week. Um, oh, wow. Sometimes you, you found your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I love it. Um, I'm reading, uh, I just finished Amy Edmondson's book, the fearless organization. I love it. Um, she talks about psychological safety in there and it's, it's just so, so good. Um, I like the um, Emily Balsitas's book, uh, "Clearer, Better, Closer." I don't know if she's been on yet, Doug, but she's no. she's a superstar, oh. superstar uh, out of NYU, a behavioral psychologist. I like everything that Dan Ariely does. I like um, you know everything that Adam Grant, Adam Atler, um, Wayne Baker. Uh, so 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 many good writers in the leadership and the business um, sector. And I read them all and enjoy them. And I mark up the book um, quite a bit and, you know, bookmarks and stuff like that so that I can use those techniques when I'm, when I'm stuck. Oh, great. Well, we'll make sure to include links to those in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any new books that you have heard of or that you're looking forward to uh, reading or seeing come out? You know, I um, I'm I'm on Amazon and I'm on Goodreads constantly adding stuff to the cart. I just added um, the Edison book. I'm not sure who the writer is, but I know that just came out. Um, I'm not sure if it's shipped yet or if it's coming out. But I like a nonfiction. I read almost all nonfiction. Oh, I don't. Yeah. I'm not a particular fan of fiction. Um, nonfiction is something that I consume uh, regularly. Oh well, that makes two of us. Although fiction is good for your brain. So at marketingbookpodcast.com will include links to everything linkable. Uh, we're going to include links to your site and to your uh, your LinkedIn profile. And I hope that listeners will you know, connect with you and, and reach out to you. And thank you for uh, joining us on the show. It, it, listener, it really makes the author's day when they hear from folks that uh, heard them on the podcast and you thank them for joining us. And also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. Final quote, over and over, attention and time not dedicated to creativity will hasten your demise because a company that does not continuously breed and develop creativity and all that it does is destined to failure. The name of the book is The Creator Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secrets to Innovation, Growth, and Sustainability. The author is Nir Bashan. Nir, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. That was fun. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.